Today's scripture reading is Psalm 51, verses 1 through 19. Take a moment to turn to the text in your Bible to follow along. The reading will also be on the screen behind me. To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone in to Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be sat justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Thanks, Vivian. Now you can be seated. <clears throat> Some of you are going, wait a minute. I thought we were studying 2 Samuel. Uh, we are studying 2 Samuel. So you want to keep your Bible open, or if you have your notebook, your 1st 2 Samuel notebook, um, you'll want to turn it to 2 Samuel chapter 12, as you probably guessed there. 2 Samuel chapter 12. Um, and I wanted Vivian to read Psalm 51 to set up and set the context and the response to 2 Samuel 12. This, uh, Psalm 51 was written, um, as she explained, um, after David and Bathsheba, after Nathan had approached David. This is a heavy chapter in 2 Samuel chapter 12, as maybe you guessed it from <laughs> the scripture reading. Um, and I've got to be honest with you, wrestled all week with this chapter and how to unpack it faithfully. Um, our teach team, I meet with a group of people on Tuesday mornings, and we just... Um, we just waded through so many different things, and the heaviness was, was, was still there. And so while there's this heaviness, um, I pray that you feel 
because of the weight and the consequence of sin. I pray that what supersedes that is a weight and a heaviness of grace that is also equally on display in this chapter of mercy and forgiveness of the God of the universe to broken people like you and me and David. And so we're going to faithfully unpack 2 Samuel chapter 12. And so keep that and we'll go uh, line by line through that. And, and, and one of the things that I want to mention here um, that's been kind of sneaky and subtle in 2 Samuel is this, that at some point, David began, I believe, to buy or believe a, a myth that maybe some of you believe. And it's this myth about life, that there is a public life and a private life. There's things that people see and know about you, and then there's the secondary one of the private life, the one you know about, the one that you keep concealed, the one you keep hidden. And I want to up front just bust that myth, if you will. There's one life, your life, lived before the eyes of a holy and righteous and perfect God. There's not a private life and a public life. There's one life lived, the real life, your life and my life. And this text will make us confront some hard realities, some hard things, and I'll be honest with you, some things that I won't necessarily even try to approach this morning or give an answer to this morning. But I'm convinced if we're not able to wade into the deep or hard things with David, the things that are brought up here in 2 Samuel chapter 12, how will we ever have any shot in our own lives of wading into the deep waters, wading into those hard places in us individually and in us as a community, as a whole? And so that is why we don't shy away from these things. That's why we don't back down and trying to approach them with humility and with worship and reverence, asking the Holy Spirit, how would you form us? How would you shape us this morning through a text like this? And I've already alluded that this chapter obviously comes on the heels of David's great fall with Bathsheba. But this chapter begins in verse 1. And we're just going to begin to unpack it and cover it in sections. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. You do not make it one verse into this chapter without seeing the lead of God's grace and mercy to David. If you remember in the last chapter, I told you to go back a couple weeks ago when I taught it and underline all the places where it said David sent or someone was sent or there was sending, sent, sending. David was sending uh, for Bathsheba. David was sending Joab out. He was sending Uriah to be killed. He was sending the messenger. Sending, sending, sending. David was doing all the sending. Remember that? And then at the very end of the sermon or the talk, I said, there will be another sending, but it won't be by David. It's by the Lord. And the Lord sends the prophet Nathan to David. Listen to me. This is grace. This is grace that God would send his prophet to convict and to show David his sin. That there is not a private and a public life. That there is one life lived before the Lord and nothing escapes his eyes. And Nathan shows up as an instrument of God's grace. Because listen. 
the Lord could have let David just wallow in his sin. He could have let him believe the lie that he had smoothed it all over, remember, by killing Uriah, by making all these public things so that standing up on the podium as king, he could look squeaky and shiny as this God-fearer. But God's grace and God's love is so palpable and so large for David that he is not going to allow him to walk in sin without confronting him. And so Nathan shows up to David. This is grace. And also, this is Nathan being obedient. Can you imagine that responsibility? And Nathan, the Lord's like, hey, I want you to go confront the king of Israel. You're the prophet of God. You speak on behalf of me. Go to David. Now, Nathan and David, they have a very close relationship, unlike Saul and Samuel. Nathan and David have a close relationship. And Nathan, understanding David, understanding the heart of God, interestingly, he doesn't show up to David and just go, here's the deal, buddy. You sinned. You really messed up, and you know you really messed up. You did this, and he doesn't begin to level an indictment, does he? Oh, you wouldn't know. Look in your text, okay? Look down, look down, okay? And he came to him and said, verse 2, he begins a story. There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had, a, had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up and, get, and grew it uh, with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. And it was like a daughter to him. And we should all be like, oh, right? Like, that's cute. Verse 4. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. You get what's going on here? So this is almost Jesus parable-esque, teaching David, right? Nathan speaking, teaching David, going, let, let, me, let me tell you a story about a really rich dude who had a, lot of, who had a lot of sheep, a traveler. Another word for traveler here could be a stranger, possibly somebody he didn't expect showed up. This guy's got flocks and herds of sheep, but he looks over at this one poor guy who has this one little lamb who he has nurtured in such a way, literally, he would feed it his bread, he would let it drink from from his cup, okay, he looks and goes, that's the lamb I want for this stranger, this guest, this traveler. I'm going to take it and, and kill it and give it to this guy, right? So it doesn't really cost me anything. I can't help to think that as David hears that story, he has a unique way of putting himself in that position. As a shepherd, as someone who raised sheep, maybe even he was uniquely acquainted with one special lamb that he would take care of and nurture and feed from his cup and from his own bread that he would go without so that this lamb could live. At minimum, David is acquainted with abundance, the king, and lack as a shepherd. A shepherd who God saw in the middle of a field and called out to be and to anoint as the king of Israel. How's David going to respond to this story? Verse 5. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. Remember, this is like a fictitious story, most likely, right? 
His anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing. And because he had no pity or no compassion, no care. Hmm. Interesting judgment by David in this parable, in this story. Outraged. Righteous indignation for this wealthy man who doesn't have any pity or compassion. One might say he's, he's displaying holy anger. And David is unknowingly putting himself in a position as righteous judge. And David, so caught up in the story that Nathan is telling, makes the proclamation, as the Lord lives, this guy should die. First off, there are... There's biblical precedence for when a treatment like this is made. And David's right that this person should return it back fourfold to the poor man. However, David's judgment ups the ante, doesn't it? David goes, he must what, class? Die. Give his life for the treatment of this poor man. David is outraged. Some of you are sensing the irony here. The hypocrisy, right? I love what Eugene Peterson says about this. He says, with each additional word in Nathan's sermon, David becomes more religious. Yeah, some of you go, oh, ha, you kind of laugh about that. That's true of some of you, how you listen to sermons. Because you listen to sermons and you hear it for someone else. You hear it going, I wish they, I, ho- I hope this lands over on the fifth row. I know who's sitting over there. This is also the essence of what religion does, is that it, it seizes on someone else's moment of failure to boost ego, to minimize their own failure. You can't help but think that David going, in this scene, listen, this is the righteous one. This is the one without compassion. Listen, be about the righteous one going, listen, there's someone worse than I. I didn't do that. David even evokes the Lord's name. Look at it in verse 5. As the Lord lives. Meaning, let me tell you what David's doing there. This is what God would want. Really, David? We're going we're gonna to use the God card here? We're going to say, I know what God wants, and this is what he wants. His righteous, and I put in quotes, righteous judgment, because this is not righteous at all. Nathan's going to get to the heart of the matter, whereas he's telling a story first. Now he's going to get very explicit. Verse 7. And Nathan said to David, after David vents, after David fumes, after David, all his religious pores just seep out. Right? And listen, when my mic cracks, um, I'm certain the Lord wants to do something because it's so distracting. Right? Let me get that fixed. Verse 7. Nathan said to David, you are the man. And that is not a compliment, okay? You are the man. You're the wealthy guy. You're the one in the story that you're outraged and crying for him to be killed, to put to death because of what he's done. You're the man. Now, let me talk about story here for just a second. Story has a way of drawing us into things, right? In, in, in a unique way. The Bible, the story of of redemption, 
Even the story of 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel has brought us into these narratives where it's not just laying out the facts for us going, hey, can't you read the bulleted list? Like, this is what you've done, and this is the remedy. It pulls us, it invites us into a story of David. Not to show us how we live life, but in turn to show us what life actually looks like that we live. And so David is caught up in the story. He makes a knee-jerk reaction, and Nathan looks back at him and goes, you're the man. Now, something that the narrator or the author has been doing over the last couple chapters is he's been using two words, two words, um, and they're not the same two words, but two words together. So when, after Bathsheba is sent away from David, she sends word back, sending, she sends word back to David, and do you remember what she says? She says, I'm pregnant. Literally, the, the author only says two words, I'm pregnant, Okay. Fast forward, because that's what causes David's reaction and what he does with Uriah. Now fast forward to this place here where Nathan is speaking to David after this huge story. He only uses two words in verse 7. I know in your English Bible it says something else. Here's what he says. You're him. You're him. David, don't you see? Are you so blind to your own sin that you do not get in this story that you're not judge? You're not the poor person. You're the guy you want to kill. Woo! And this stops David dead in his tracks. In verse 9, Nathan looks at David after he says, you're him. And he says, why have you despised the word of the Lord? This is the essence of all sin. Despising God's word. Despising God himself. You say, Kyle, what what does it mean to despise the word of the Lord? Well, this has been used in other places in 1 and 2 Samuel. To despise the Lord, we'll also see it later in this chapter where it says, you've scorned the Lord. Here's what it means. It means to treat the Lord or the word of God as common, as ordinary, as something that I can Take when I want to take it and listen to it. Leave when I don't. Yeah, I'll yield to it when it benefits me. When it leads to to flourishing that I can see or that I want, that that I want to experience, oh yeah, I'll take it, I'll receive it. Mm, God's blessings are good. However, when God's word or God himself confronts you in things that you want to continue in, you're like, I'll just leave it. It's treating God like a commodity, like he's a product. I'll use it up for its usefulness and put it back on its shelf when I want to go on to something else. That's what it means to despise the word of God or to scorn the Lord. Now, don't raise your hand because all of our hands would be raised. How many of you have ever found yourself doing that or participating in something like that? Using God for his usefulness. And when something in God's word confronts you, you're like, well, I don't know if it actually means that, right? I don't know if the interpretation is, you know, maybe the Greek or Hebrew. And you're like, what? No, it says that. You're him. Earlier on in 1 Samuel, do you remember the Israelites um, and how they treated the Ark of the Covenant? It says that they despised God or they treated it as ordinary. They were losing a battle. They had lost a battle. And they're like, oh, we, we know what can fix this. They're like, we forgot to bring the Ark in. And so what did they do? They marched it in like a commodity going, now we will win. And God absolutely rebuked them by going, listen, I will not be treated as ordinary. I am not your servant. You serve me. 
That the victories, yes, they come in and through me, but God goes on my terms, in my way. And what David is working toward here in this chapter and what Nathan is trying to get to David to see is this, that he has lost something very, very valuable in his relationship with God. David has absolutely lost his awareness of who God truly is. That David at this point in his life is a very wealthy a very prestigious, a man of power, a man that has everything, a house, a man that has seen uh, Israel unite with Judah and, and, and Israel itself. Yet David has forgotten the one who has actually made all of that happen, God. David has begun to look at his own strength, his own power, and things in his own hands that he has to take control of, i.e. chapter 11 with Bathsheba. I see it, I want it, I'll take it, it's mine. Talk about no compassion. And then verse 13 and 14, there are these consequences that roll out of Nathan's mouth that will happen. He says, I'll rise up evil against you and your house and the sword will not depart from your house and things like that. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. The Lord's going, these consequences will roll, roll on. Listen, you will see and experience forgiveness, yes, but the consequences of chapter 11 will continue in chapters ahead. We will see that in 2 Samuel. And the question is, we haven't heard anything from David after he's been confronted at this point. How's David going to handle this rebuke? How's David going to handle the conviction of the Spirit through the word of the Lord through Nathan? How can David at this point still be a man after God's own heart? Here's how. Verse 13. And David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Two words. I'm pregnant. Two words, you're him. You guessed it. In this verse, there are again two words, I've sinned. David goes, I'm guilty. And this is where most scholars believe, and it's right, that Psalm 51 inserted. What Vivian just read in David's perspective, that is his response to this story and this rebuke and this conviction of sin against you and you alone, O oh Lord, have I sinned, David said. Don't remove your presence from me. Do not take your spirit away from me. Read Psalm 51 this week. That is David's response to conviction. How can David still be a man after God's own heart? Here's how. Because unlike Saul, who we walked months with in 1 Samuel, David, when he is met with conviction by the Holy Spirit, reorients his life completely around the Lord, owns where he has fallen, and goes, Lord, I have sinned against you and you alone, against your heart. God, whatever the consequences may be, they can't be as great as you taking your spirit away from me, so bring the earthly consequences. Bring whatever you want. Just don't take your spirit away from me. Don't take your, another word, presence. Better is one day. Come what may, I know there are consequences to sin, but don't take your presence from me. 
You see, David realizes who he actually is and what he's actually done. Augustine um, writes about, uh, he, it's, a, it's a Latin phrase, some silly Latin phrase, right? But it essentially means this, oh, happy sin. Now, those are three words that don't go together, right? Unless, as Augustine writes, that when and only when we recognize our sin, are we in a position to recognize and respond to the God who forgives our sin. You get that? That only when we recognize the depth of our depravity, who we really are in the story, not the righteous judge, not the person who the lamb was taken from, but we're the one who had no pity. We're the one who asserted our power. We're the ones who sinned. We're the ones who have fallen short of God's glory. We're the ones. It's only then that we'll be able to receive the grace and mercy of God. It's only then that we'll actually be able to understand and see God rightly for who he is. You see, Nathan had recovered for David something he had lost when he walked into that palace room and this story and declared, you're the man, but there is a God who forgives your sin. There is a God who loves you. David, you were intoxicated on your own power, your own possession. You had an obsession with self is now being revealed for what it truly was, an absolute lie. You could fool everyone else in Israel, but the eyes of the Lord see your heart. They see your deeds. And now David, fully aware of God's love and grace and salvation, which is fully on display, David reorients his life back to God. But let me tell you, it is not without pain and suffering and continued consequence. James, essentially what I said two weeks ago, James saying when sin is fully conceived, gives birth to what? Death. Romans, Paul puts it like this, that the wages or the payment for sin is what? Death. How do we reckon that? Well, this is where the text gets, that couldn't get any more difficult, gets more difficult. The end of verse 13, and Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin and you shall not die. Mercy. The Lord put away your sin. Put away, it's the Hebrew word forgive. The Lord is, is, is causing his memory to not recall your sin, David. Like how crazy is that? The God of the universe is choosing to remove your sin from you, David. Choosing to remember and not hold it against you any longer. So much so that, David, you wanted to call for the guy who didn't have to die to die. You actually deserve death because of what you did in chapter 11. You deserved it. But God's going to let you live. Do you feel grace? Do you feel mercy? Do you feel love? Now let's keep reading. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. Why? Why did the child die?
Was it because of David's sin? Was it because the child was sick and that's part of this broken and fallen world that sin has fractured and splintered since Genesis 3? Was there affliction that we're not told about? I don't know. And I don't say that flippantly. I don't say that as just a sidestep to the text. I say that because we're not necessarily told. And I don't want to say anything that's going to give a false sense of this text or false assurance of why we might know how the sovereign God moves and does what he does. What I know is that David has a perspective of God after his confrontation and his breaking that he looks to God and he goes, listen, I trust you no matter what happens. In verse 16, David, and the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David and he became sick. In verse 16, and David therefore sought God on behalf of the child and David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. Do you remember how David treated this child when he heard that Bathsheba was pregnant? Remember the cover-up he tried to do? Bringing Uriah home, hey, go, go lay with your wife, and then that pregnancy can be his and just kind of swept up, and that plan didn't work. You remember that story? And it didn't work, and then David continued to take matters in his own hands. Listen, this child... In those scenes, in those scenarios, David wanted nothing to do with. And here, God has so gripped and changed David's heart where he has now fallen on the ground. He is fasting and he is praying that this child might live. And let me tell you, David's fasting and praying by him being on the ground. Listen, he is going, God, I'm the guilty one. I'm the guilty one. Not this child. This child didn't do anything to deserve this. This child didn't do anything. Some of you know what it's like to be on the ground with that kind of pain and suffering. Some of you have walked through this exact scene before with losing a child. It's the picture we're to get of David and his servants and his people try to lift him up and they can't. They can't get him off the ground. He's like, I'm not leaving. It's almost as if he's wanting himself to go in place of the child. God, take me. Take me, not this child. And I want to ask a question here. In pain and suffering, how do you ever get off the ground? Especially when your sin levels you when you believe you're the reason potentially of something happening. I'm not saying that's the case here, but that might be David's mindset. We know his sin played some part in this. How do you get off the ground? How do you ever stand up? Because that's what happens. They come and David asks in verse 19, is the child dead? And they say, he is dead. In verse 20, then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself, changed his clothes and went, get this, and went into the house of the Lord and worshiped him. What a juxtaposition, right? Fasting and prayer. 
Something has so gripped David that at the moment he hears that God's plan has been executed, his will has happened according to what Nathan has said, he stands up on his feet, and the first place that he goes is where? To the house of the Lord to worship God, to say, God, I don't fully get this. God, I don't understand this. I don't know the full scope. I don't know the full plan. God, I know my own heart, but I know who you are, and you're in control. You're the one who's sovereign over all this, and I'm going to worship you. When is David at his best? When he's inquiring of the Lord, when he's worshiping of the Lord, when he's before God, when is David at his worst? When he's detached from the presence of God, i.e. go read chapter 11 again. And so he's back worshiping. How can he worship in the worst time in his life, the worst moment in his life? How can he find himself before the Lord? Because the Lord has reoriented David's heart. Not only has David reoriented back to the Lord, but the Lord is doing surgery on David's heart. And listen, that is exactly what pain and suffering do in the life of a believer. Don't for a minute think that this child was God paying back or doing something like this. God was bringing David through pain, through suffering, through these challenges to do surgery on David's heart, to lay David open. In verse 24 and 25, as the story continues, you'll see another son be born through Bathsheba and David. And that son's name is Solomon, who we're going to talk about in a little while forward. The name Solomon means peace. Peace. He also has a second name. Look at it in your text, verse 25. Jedediah. Jedediah, the name means beloved by God or loved by God. That there's this picture and this story that continues through pain and through suffering to the joy of childbirth with Solomon, this child whose name means peace and loved by God. This picture of God's care, his love, his mercy on display. So I want to I wanna close with a couple very pointed statements. The first is this, that God forgives repentant sinners like you and me. That some of you, you think you're, you've outsinned God's grace and mercy. That is a lie. That God, God's love and God's salvation there is no end to which his arm can reach to save, the scriptures say. While simultaneously from this text and scriptures tell us that there are consequences to our sin and that the consequences of sin are devastating. They're devastating. We will walk through some of those devastations. We walk through one of them today with this child. We'll walk through them in the chapters to come. These are the consequences of sin. But the only way the consequences and the pain and the suffering of this broken world do not break us, do not keep us on the floor, the only way we're not staying on the floor is that we understand the heart of our God who sees and knows everything, who is working 
for his glory in every single three thing that, that for Christians, for believers, there is a redemptive thread sown in all of our suffering, in all of our pain, every bit of it. Hear me. It doesn't escape God. But oftentimes it escapes me. In the, the moments of pain, whether it's self-inflicted or inflicted by others in my life, I find out how works-based my theology actually is. And pain and suffering, when it hits on my life, I'll go, oh, I'm, I'm such an idiot. I'll feel the shame. This guilt. Anybody ever been there? I did, yeah, feel the shame and this guilt. Or there are other times where pain and suffering will hit my life, and I'll go, God, what? what who, who, who do you think you are? I'll be bitter toward the God of the universe. Right, God, don't you know I'm a preacher? I go to church a lot, God. Aren't you proud of me? Right? You're laughing because you've been there. Where you begin to justify, like, wait a minute, why is this happening to me? I'm a good person. Wait a minute. You're him. And we're confronted with things like this where a child dies and we're like, God, I can't grasp my mind around it. And you're absolutely right. You know what else I can't grasp my mind? You know what else I can't fully comprehend? Is that our God is so unique in who he is that he never asks of us something he hasn't demonstrated a million times more and deeper. That he looks at himself and he goes, it requires the son. It requires the death of a son. And so what does he do? The God of the universe. He gives his son for us. You see, we, we heard a story that reveals with David and it revealed, but there is the story that reveals and it's the gospel story. That the God of the universe made a way for you and me to be forgiven of our sin. You're the man, you're the woman. I have sinned, and God goes, I've stepped in and made a way for you. And it's at the cost of my son, the death of my son. You see, we're outraged at texts like this going, God, how could you? But yet when we talk about God giving his son, we're like, thank you. Think about that. Romans 5.8. This is the gospel in a verse for me. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, sin demands what? A payment, death. Christ died for us, for you and for me. While we were still rejecting God, while we were still running away from him, God made a way demonstrating his love by sending his son to die for you and for me the son giving his life for us. Our communion, if you have your elements, yes, we pass them out. We receive these every week. And if you need elements, our, our hosts will be in back. You can lift your hand and they'll, they'll help you receive them. Just place them up slowly. This is meant to bring to our memory this scene and this message and this story every week.
the story, the very real story, that sin has a cost and a consequence. Sin has a debt that must be paid. And that we, with our New Testament lenses and our New Testament minds, we see that debt being paid in the one who gave his perfect body to be broken and shed his innocent blood for our sin. That I'm the one on the floor going, it should be me. It was my sin, the hymn says, that held him there. It was my sin and your sin that put him on the cross. And so we come remembering our great salvation, remembering the great love and the great mercy of our God. And for some of you, listen to me very clearly, you have not received his love in Christ Jesus. You've received some modified religion type version where it's like, hey, you need to clean yourself up, then you can come. Or maybe you've received some version of like, if you could just do this or do that. No, 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 this is grace. This is about receiving the person and work of Jesus Christ, the son of God who gave his life for you. Receive it. He's not waiting on the better version of you. He's going, come to me, all the baggage, all this, and right where you are, right where you are in 2 Samuel chapter 11, bring it with your confession. I'm the man. I'm the man who has no pity. I'm the man who has no care. I'm the man who, who, who is the chief sinner of all. I bring it to you, Lord. What are you gonna do with this? And this is what he says. I'm gonna cover it with the life of my son. But it's not until we come with that confession and saying, Father, in light of your grace, I wanna live differently that we'll actually know the beauty and depth of his love. And some of you need to come in that form, in that fashion, and receive Christ for the first time this morning. Others of you believers, may we again find ourselves throwing ourselves at the feet of the finished work of Jesus Christ. His cross that covers all of our sins, right? Our sins, they are many, but his mercy is more. We come in confession of our sin in repentance, going, Lord, I have sinned against you and you alone. Change my heart, change my mind, and let my feet follow. So let us spend just a moment before we rush in to take these elements, praying a very bold prayer, and it's this. Holy Spirit, show me. Show me the areas where my life is not lived in faithful obedience to the word of God. Pray that prayer. Others of you, the prayer you need to pray is, Jesus, I trust you. I trust you in the pain and suffering that I'm walking through. Let me know that you're there. God, show me the redemptive thread that's being woven because I don't see it. stand with me.
We've just prepared our hearts to receive the broken body and shed blood of Jesus Christ. This is a meal of invitation. I gave an invitation for those to trust in Christ that he's pulling out a chair at this table to partake of his broken body and shed blood. If you'd say, hey, Kyle, I'm just not there yet, or hey, I, I wanna know more about Jesus, man, we'd love to talk with you this morning, but we would ask you to abstain from taking these. These are for professing believers. For some of you, you'll be taking communion for the first time because you put your faith and trust in Jesus. And so on the night Jesus was betrayed, after giving thanks, he took bread and broke it. And he told his disciples, as he tells us, this is my broken body for you. Let's take it. And in the same manner and fashion, he took the cup. The salvation that David, though dimly lit, though in part, Jesus goes, is now fulfilled and complete in me. My shed blood is the sacrifice for your sin. So he raised the cup of salvation this morning and partake of it together. church, the only fitting response after communion is what? Worship of people who are on the floor dead in our sin, now standing to worship. Let's worship the Father. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you that he saved us and transformed us. And I pray that you would continue to work in our hearts and our lives and our minds to show us more deeply who you are so that by faith we may live for you and a watching world might see Jesus clearly through the power of the Holy Spirit. I love you. Thank you for this church. Thank you for a group of people who are willing to wade into the deep waters, into the complexities of your scriptures, but also of this life, trusting and knowing you are our anchor. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.